1 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, King Solomon was over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Elahoreth and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiarthar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabad, the son of Nathan, was priest and king's friend. Ahishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had twelve officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provisions for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Machaz, Shalbim, Beth Shemesh, and El in Beth Hanan, Ben-Hesed in Araboth, to him belonged Soko in the land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab in all Napheth Dor, he had Tapheth the daughter of Solomon as his wife, Bana the son of Ahalud in Tanakh, Megiddo in all Beth Shean, that is beside Zarathon below Jezreel, and from Beth Shean to Abel Mehalah as far as the other side of Jokneam. Ben-Geber in Ramoth-Gilead, he had the villages of Jair and the son of Manasseh, which are in Galead. And he had the region of Argob, Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. Ahinadab, the son of Ido in Mahanaim, Ahimaaz in Naphtali. He had taken Basimoth, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Hushai in Asher in Baaloth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua in Issachar, Shimei, the son of Ella in Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the regions west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him in Judah. And Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, 
from, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Well, Mark Bertrand in his book, Rethinking Worldview, writes, For modern people, the pursuit of wisdom sounds something you'd have to travel to Tibet for. To us, wisdom is mystical and esoteric. It conjures up images of cave-dwelling hermits, saffron-robed monks, and, well, Yoda. Yoda, with his withered body, his sprigs of white ear hair, and his shaky grasp of diction, is the perfect embodiment of our many twisted notions about wisdom. Consider the notions, virtues, sorry, of Yoda. He is small and puny. He, it is almost as though he compensates from physical weakness with his psychic power. The ultimate expression of wisdom would be a disembodied brain, and Yoda comes pretty close. He's difficult to understand. Most of the time, we just have to assume that what Yoda says is wise because nobody can follow it. When he isn't speaking in riddles, he's swapping his nouns and verbs around like a bad Victorian puppet. Poet, wise must he be, for understand him, I cannot. He lives in an out-of-the-way place. To find Yoda, Luke Skywalker has to travel to a remote and swampy planet. The esoterically wise do not live with the rest of us. You must undertake an arduous quest for the privilege of sitting at their feet. And lastly, he has magic, almost supernatural mental powers. He can move things with his mind. He can move things with his mind, read thoughts, and scrupulously avoid proper syntax all at the same time. He has reached the plateau of spiritual enlightenment and is no longer bound by the laws of physics and grammar. Well, he then concludes, we have adopted this Eastern view of wisdom and thus so many, due to its esoteric nature, don't have any interest in it. And yet as we look at this passage this morning in 1 Kings 4, we're going to see that wisdom is anything but esoteric or meant for the select few. Rather, what we're going to see is the continuing example of Solomon being given what he asked for from God. If you read the beginning of 1 Kings 3, God offered Solomon anything he wanted. And rather than asking for power or asking for riches, or asking for anything like that. He asked for wisdom so he could rule his people. And we saw a specific example in how he handled a case. And now in 1 Kings 4, we see exemplified the wisdom of God. And we see it in three big categories. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back. First, in verses 1 through 19, we see that wisdom creates order. Second, in verses 20 through 28, we see that wisdom leads to peace and prosperity. And third, in 29 to the end, verse 34, wisdom is wide and varied. But the chapter begins in verse 1 with the many leaders that Solomon set in place over the kingdom. There's nine, verse, nine different men. First there's Azariah. He becomes the priest. Now there's also two other priests, Zadok and Abiathar, but they are older and probably just normal priests, whereas Azariah is the high priest. We're then told of two men, which the ESV calls secretaries and recorders. Secretary, probably like secretary of state or secretary of the treasury and the recorder, though we don't know for sure what these men did. Then in verses 4 and 5, we see Solomon living out what his father David told him to do, and that is treat loyally those who are loyal to you. So Benaniah, who was loyal to Solomon taking the throne in chapter 1 and 2, is made commander of the army. And Nathan's sons are given high positions. Two other 
major positions are filled with Ahazar and with a man named Adoniram in verse 6. Now Adoniram is over the workers and he's quite popular now. But when Solomon's reign ends and his son takes the throne, Rehoboam, he sends Adoniram to go get all the workers and they stone Adoniram to death. Right now, Solomon's plans lead to peace and prosperity, but it will not always be that way. And then verses 7 through 19 give details of these various men who each had the role of providing for the king and his servants one month out of the year. So they have 11 months where they can go and they can gather up provisions, make sure they have wonderful gifts to bring, and then in one month they deliver it and take care of the government and the king for that month. Now 12 men, 12 months. It's interesting as you dive into the details geographically, they don't exactly match up with the alignment of the tribes. Now there's some language like like, like the hills of Ephraim in verse 8, but if you dive in, there's some from this tribal region and some from this. Why did Solomon do this? Well, we don't know. Some people speculate negatively. Well, Solomon's trying to centralize power, take down the tribes. Well, it doesn't tell us that. Some speculate, well, he's doing this because he's trying to get the richer and the poor together, make it an equal distribution. Well, it doesn't tell us that. It just says this is the way he decided to split it up. 12 regions, 12 months. And we're not told anymore but one thing we do see clearly and that is that the land that Moses desired that Joshua conquered and David subdued is now in the hands of a wise man well what are we to make of these verses probably some of you were thinking is he going to go over all those names again that was pretty long just sitting here listening are we going to like talk about every one of those names I mean Paul tells us all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. What in the world do we make of a list like this? Now, we can make many things, and I had several, but I'm going to point to one thing that we should draw from this, and that is wisdom leads to order. Solomon, in his wisdom, realized, I cannot rule this nation alone. I need to appoint others so that they can each rule their little parts, and together we can rule this nation. Now, this may seem like a small detail, and it may seem like a forced application for maybe a type A drill sergeant type who wants order. I can find that somewhere in the Bible, and now I can bludgeon all my free spirit type B friends. The Bible wants order. And yet, let's look at the rest of God's word, and even God's world, and see that there is a beauty and a necessity for order in our lives. First, God's word, consider Paul's words to Titus. Titus chapter 1, he's writing to him, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. There needs to be order within the church. That was what the young Titus was to do. Now, this is not just something we now have to do because of sin. Oh, man, before Adam and Eve sinned, we didn't have to do all this ordering of things. Well, actually, one of the things they were doing, the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, was to subdue the earth. They were to bring order. They were to bring beauty out of what was there. So even before sin, there was this need to create and make things beautiful and orderly. 
And when we bring this order, it's a blessing to others. Joseph, Jacob's son, when he was taken to Egypt and then made second in command of Egypt, he brought order to the crops, which then allowed them to live through a famine. His order was a blessing to others. And order needs to happen with structures and policies, but also in relationships. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you might find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. You've probably had that in your relationships. When there's conflict, there's disorder. Satan loves this disorder. We read earlier James 3 where it's contrasting the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Satan. And it said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But in contrast to satanic disorder, God calls us to create order because he's a God of order. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's instructing the church, how should we lead our worship? And he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then he goes on and he wraps up that section in verse 40 by saying, all things should be done decently and in order. Because we want to reflect our God. We create in every sphere of our life order. And God's word shows us that in many, many ways. But we also see that if we pause and think about God's world. Just imagine that if you went to the grocery store and the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker all came and just threw all their stuff in. And you said, hey, I, I need some oranges. And they go, yeah. When the truck came, they just dumped it all back there. I think it's in the third pile. There might be some oranges back there. Like, what are you talking about? You should create departments. The produce department, the meat department, the dairy department. And then within that department, you should put labels and have everything organized. And that's exactly what they do because order is a blessing. We see that in our world. What do our judicial system need? Order, order in the court. You can't have justice when there's no order. And the essential nature of order was driven home to me when I was a teacher. I was a math teacher for several years, and for a couple years, I had a teacher next to me, and as hard as this may seem to believe, she would not look at her students in the eye. She would look at her overhead projector, and then she would look over at that wall, up, and across, and then down, and then back at her projector. Well, you already can tell what's going to happen in this classroom. Well, it's not many minutes into the first day when they realize she's not looking at us. Passing notes, texting, whatever happens, and soon there is chaos. And every day the volume next to me went louder and louder and louder until she popped a gasket, blew a gasket, and then for a couple days, it was quieter, and then louder and louder, and we just went through this cycle throughout the year. And you know what the students thought at the beginning of the year? This is great. We get to do whatever we want. This class time is so wonderful. And you know what they all thought to a person at the end of the year? This was horrible. We hated it. Every single day I had to go in there, and it was chaos. And you know what I learned? Nothing. We think we want to be able to do what we want, no order, and yet every single student I talked to hated that class. They do not like disorder. 
God's word shows us, God's world shows us, we need order. And here in this chapter, God is showing us the exemplary nature of Solomon's wisdom is that he is able to create order in his kingdom. Thus, though you may not consider this very spiritual advice, God's word instructs us that for you to honor him, you need to have order in your life. So, does your life show order? If we look at your car, or your desk, or your bedroom, or your toy closet, or your garage, is there a semblance of order? If we look at the way you use your time, or your money, or your relationships, is there order? Now, of course, people can idolize things, and we've all known someone who you slightly touch something out of order, and they go berserk. That's not what I'm talking about, and that's not what God's word is talking about. But there should be, for everyone, whether a free spirit or not, there should be a semblance of order, because that is what our God is like, and that is what he calls us to. And so Solomon exemplifies that order for us, but he also, by his wisdom, leads his nation in peace and prosperity. And we see that next in verses 20 through 28. Because the author then tells of the many promises that were fulfilled through Solomon because of Solomon's wisdom. As you try and think about how can we understand the promises of God in the Old Testament, there's many ways, but one way of understanding God's promises, the major promises that God promised a people, he promised a place, he promised prosperity, and he promised peace. And we see all of those here. Here, we see in the first few verses, the promise of a people. God said to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the sea shore. And that is almost verbatim what it says in verse 20. They are a people that are as many as the sand by the sea. God has kept his promise of them being a great people. Solomon's wise rule leads to many people. Not only that, but we see in verse 21 that it leads to a place. Genesis 15, 18, God again speaking to Abraham, it says, he said, in that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. If you look down at verse 21, those are the exact same boundaries. Solomon's wise rule led to them having a huge place, the place that God had promised. Not only do they have a people in a place, but they have prosperity. Now, now prosperity is not all that God promised. But it's not less than that. When God said, in you I will make all the nations great, that was implying prosperity. In verse 20, it says they all ate and drank and were happy. In verse 21, the nations are bringing them tribute. Solomon's wise rule leads to prosperity. And so there's a people, there's a place, there's prosperity, and on top of all this, there is peace. And we see the promise of peace to David in 2 Samuel 7, where it says, and I will appoint you a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men will afflict them no more. 
And Solomon's wise rule leads to peace. And so Solomon is blessing his people here. And he goes on to expound on the blessings of the prosperity. In verse 22, he tells that in one day for their house, they needed 30 cores of wheat and 60 cores of flour. And he'll go on and tell all these different animals and this massive amount of food that was needed each day. Now, this is not Paul Bunyan famous lumberjack-like, where his pancake griddle was so big, big that men first had to put slabs of butter on their feet and skate across for hours to grease the skillet. It was not like the mixer for the pancake batter that was made in a concrete machine and needed rubber hoses to spray it that it was so big. Those are great legends. They're not true. This is history. Now here, it's not just talking about Solomon. Solomon wasn't eating all this by himself. This is his family and the royal court. But in this, they had every day 10 fattened oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, also deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. I don't know if when you look back on your life, what your favorite meals are, but one of the best I've ever had was at Texas Day Brazil. It's a Brazilian steakhouse, if you've ever been to one. And these men walk around with these huge swords full of meat. I looked up because I forgot everything they had. But there they have pork loin, top sirloin, Brazilian sausage, leg of lamb, chicken breast, wrapped in bacon, lamb chops, filet mignon and bacon, braised beef rib, pork ribs, flank steak, and on and on. And as long as you leave that miraculous medallion green, they keep shaving it off for you. I mean, all this incredible meat, and you can have as much as you want. And if you get a little tired of meat, flip that little medallion over, and then you can go to this buffet bar that is just as incredible as the meat, and you can have as much as you want. And this incredible meal that I had once is what Solomon had every single day. He brought blessing so that you, so they would have prosperity. And this passage is kind of overflowing as I was reading. It's kind of like a child who's so excited about telling what they got for Christmas. They're talking about this and then that, and then they jump back to the first thing, and then they go to another, and then they go back. Because the next few verses, he kind of repeats what he's already said, and then he says something else, and then he jumps. He's going back between, well, look, we have all this land, and then we have all this prosperity, but let me tell you about the land again. And then we have peace, and then we he's going all over the place telling of everything they've happened, that's happened to them. He says in verse 25 that every man is under his vine and under his fig tree. That's the equivalent of our 20th century political statement, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. You know, that was said early in the 1900s to say, if you elect this politician, if you get this party in office, then every house will have a chicken in the pot and you'll even have a car. Well, here they're saying in Israel, hey, this is true. Every man gets to sit under his vine. He has wine that he can make. And he has a fig tree. Trees take years. There's been long peace and prosperity. This is what's happened due to the wise rule of Solomon. When the prophet Micah, after all of this, falls apart because of their sin and exile, when he he wants to foretell of a future time that will occur because of God coming, he says, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. This is their image of peace and prosperity, and it's happening in the days of Solomon 
due to his wisdom. Now, this is not an isolated event like Jerusalem and Solomon are enjoying this. This is from Dan to Beersheba. Now, Dan is a town almost at the very northern tip of Israel. Beersheba is a town almost at the southern border of Israel. This would be like we say from sea to shining sea or from Detroit down to Houston, from New York to L.A. I won't keep going. It's saying the whole country, everyone is blessed from one extreme to the other because of Solomon's wise rule. He goes on in verse 26, because Solomon's wealth not only includes his daily food, but also his horses. He has 40,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, I think here what the author is doing is doing what movies often do. You know, imagine you're watching a movie about a spaceship. And at the beginning of the movie, somewhat unbeknownst, you're wondering why they do it, they show a man tightening a screw. And right as he walks away, the screw shifts. And as the movie goes on, they're showing things going well, but every once in a while they shift back to that screw, and you kind of see it rattle, and you're slowly seeing it come loose. But it's not a major scene in the movie, and they go back, and you're kind of going, I think that's going to mean something later on. I think that screw means something. Well, I think the author is, one, showing the wealth, but I don't think it's incidental that he brought up the horses. I think we're, again, seeing the screw jiggle in Solomon's life. Because Deuteronomy 17 explicitly says the king should not gather many horses. So there are probably many ways that the author could have described the wealth of Solomon. But I think he jiggles the screw, so to speak, and says, yeah, this is good, but we got to remember, this is going to lead to some problems down the road. But he doesn't focus on that, so neither we w- will we. Because right now, he's focusing on the fact that Solomon's wise rule brings blessing to others. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous rulers increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. 2 Samuel 23 says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. We live in an anti-authoritarian age. People love to be part of the resistance. Oh yeah, break the rules. Yeah, resist. You don't hear many people say, obeying leaders. Yes, that's great. And yet, the Bible is showing us when a ruler leads well, it's a blessing to others. It is not always good to resist authority. In fact, it is often bad. And we have probably all had a parent, or a coach, or a teacher, or someone in authority over us, and because of the way they led us, everyone did better. Everyone says, oh, I remember that band teacher, and boy, we hated him at the time, but he pushed us, and we got to go to state, and I'm so good at music even to today because of what a great leader he was, or she was, or whoever, whatever the case may be. And Solomon is exemplifying that, that wise ruling whoever you're over, will be a blessing to those under you. Whether you rule over a toy cabinet, or whether you're watching just a toddler, or whether you're over hundreds of people, if you will rule it wisely, you will be a blessing to others. Now some may say, hold on, hold on. 
I've known people who were wise. I've known people who've loved God, served God. They didn't have peace and prosperity. That's not true. That's not always true. And that's where we need to say we're talking about wisdom. And scriptural wisdom is dealing with generally true principles. They are not promises of if you do this, this will always follow. Hopefully we could all agree with exercise is good for you and will lead to a longer life. And yet someone could say, I knew a friend who was 35 and exercised every day and he died of a heart attack running. Well, we don't then go, well, you're right, let's all not exercise. We say, well, there's exceptions to every rule. And here we're being shown in general, if you will seek God, if you will seek to be wise in the way you oversee your position, you will be a blessing. You will lead to peace. You will lead to prosperity in those who are in your life. So we've seen that Solomon's wisdom leads to order and then it blesses others. And then lastly, we see that his wisdom is wide and varied. We see that in verses 29 through 34. And his wisdom, the, the magnitude of it, is kind of expressed in four ways. In verse 30, it's kind of superior to all these other regions. People of the east, the wisdom of Egypt. If this was today, people might say, He's wiser than all the Ivy League professors, all the people in Europe, and all the gurus of China. Second, Solomon's wisdom is greater than specific people, and they list these men. We don't know who they are, but at that time, they were probably considered quite wise. Tells of the massive amount of writing he did, the Proverbs, of which we have many, and songs. Perhaps Song of Solomon is one of them. And fourth, Solomon's wisdom gets exemplified exemplified by his wide and varied knowledge. He knows of the cedar in Lebanon and the hyssop that grows out of the wall. Now, the cedars of Lebanon were renowned for being massive and great trees. They might be the sequoias and the redwoods of California. It's not surprising Solomon knows these. These are the type of things people take vacations to go see. But the point is the contrast. He knows the greatest, and he also knows about that annoying bush that grows out of the wall. The one that everyone goes, ah, I ripped that out. That's not supposed to be there. Now, hyssop trees were used in various places, but the hyssop is one of the smallest. And it's saying that Solomon observed and studied all of life. What was considered the greatest to what most people didn't even pay attention to as they walked. Solomon's wisdom is that he observed and studied all of life from the least to the greatest. And not only does he know about plants, but he knows about animals. And here, the author doesn't list animals. Rather, he gives the four categories that are used in Genesis 1 when it talks about what is made. He's saying, basically, Solomon knows about it all. And his wisdom is so great that people come from all the earth to hear him, even kings. And so here, it's a very important to see that Solomon's wisdom does not stay limited to spiritual items. And I put that in quotes because the way we think of spiritual is what we're doing right now. We're doing a spiritual activity. But then you're going to go home and you're going to do something unspiritual. You're going to eat lunch. Well, actually, that's pretty spiritual. No, but we think of these very bifurcated ways. There's this part of my life that's my spiritual part of my life, but then i got to go to work. 
and then I got to go to the gym, and I got to buy groceries, and that's the secular part of my life. And yet, Solomon is showing that all of life is under God. All of life is spiritual. You should not have a distinction in your life of, well, this is when I'm doing stuff that relates to God, and here now I'm doing stuff that doesn't really relate to God. All of it relates to God. And he's showing us that he delights in all that God has made and that God has put all of it in our lives for a purpose. And there's really two major applications from this. First, since all of life is spiritual and God wants us to study it all, then all moral callings can fully serve God. And you may think, well, what's he talking about? What's the big deal here? And what I'm getting at is that, sadly, there's this idea that Christians sometimes have that I'm not really, I'm not fully, I'm not completely serving God because I'm not on the mission field. Or I'm not a pastor. And really, that person became a pastor. They're fully serving God now. Well, that's not true. You can fully, 100% serve God no matter what you're doing as long as it is a moral calling. As long as you do what you do and you're not causing yourself or others to sin, you can please God whether you're a teacher or a homemaker, an engineer or a pilot, a fireman or an HVAC worker. It doesn't matter what you do if you do it for the Lord. I wonder if you've ever heard of Bezalel. Bezalel appears in the Bible in Exodus 31, and he's the first person to be declared to be full of the Spirit of God. So if you're told someone's full of the Spirit of God, what would you assume this person must be? Well, probably many of us would think, oh, well, he's a prophet, or he's a priest, or he's got a religious vocation. Well, he does have a religious vocation, but not in the way we think. He is a craftsman. God's Spirit fills him to make beautiful bowls, beautiful curtains, beautiful decorations for the temple. He was serving God. He was filled with God's spirit to do what we would call a secular job. But it's not. We think in these bifurcated ways, but all of life you can serve God. Have you ever noticed that Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life as a child and then a carpenter? It's not as though he was on hold. Well, when I get to year 31 and I begin my ministry, that's when I'm going to serve my father. The first 30 years, that's kind of incidental carpentry work. No big deal. No, he was serving his father every single second. So if you love studying salamanders, become a salamanderologist, such a thing exists. If you love getting your hands on machines, well, then be a mechanic. Whatever that you love, if it's not sinning, do it for God's glory. You don't need to become a pastor. You don't need to go to a foreign land. Wherever you are, you can fully please and serve God. You don't need to get to a certain place or be in a certain position or have a certain title to honor God. So whether you police the city or plunge the potty, you can please and serve God. Whether you work outside the home or inside the home, you can please and serve God. Whether what you care about, everyone cares about, or everyone goes, why do they care about that? You can fully please and serve God. 
So do your best every single second as unto the Lord. And even these things that everyone else goes, who cares? Why would you study insects? They're God's insects. And if you love them, study them with all your might. And you can honor God in that way. But the second major application from realizing that all of life is from God and so that we should study is that we need to carefully observe this world. Solomon didn't learn about the hyssop tree by chance. He stopped and he looked at what was going on. His mind was active. His eyes were open to see. Sherlock Holmes, the famous detective, loved to tell people, you see but you don't observe. Are you observing the world around you? Are you taking it in? Are you flying through so quickly that you're not noticing this beautiful world that God has given us? A few years back, a study was done on a college campus, and researchers would walk. Students enter one side of the campus square, and they walk to the other. And the ones who walked all the way through, sometimes, you know, they can't grab them all. Grab them. Hey, can you tell us what you saw as you came through the campus square? And they tell them, they say, well, were you paying attention? Oh, yeah, I was paying attention. And 75% did not notice the clown riding on a unicycle juggling balls. Well, why, why wouldn't they notice this? Well, because they have so many important notifications telling them what's important. They're so focused on what really matters. No. Put it away. Open your eyes and look at the world God has given us. This is not a technology rant. Technology can serve God too. But we have to open, turn off, and observe the life that God has given before us. I wonder if you've heard of Dr. Agassiz. He was the founder of the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. And students wanted to come and learn from him. He was a famous professor. And so they would come and person after person would have the same experience. They'd already gotten their undergraduate degree and graduate degree, and now they're coming to him for doctoral work, and they're going to learn. And they'd come with eager enthusiasm, and he'd with equal enthusiasm take him to a lab desk, plop a fish down and say, write down everything you see, and he'd walk away. And they would sit there in stunned shock. Well, I mean, I already got a graduate degree. Fish, come on. But it, Dr. Agassiz said, do it. So after a while, they kind of poke and write some stuff down. And when they think they'd written down everything, they'd take it to them and go, that's great. That's good. You missed a lot of stuff. Go do it again. And they'd be shocked. And they'd go back and look. There, it's the dead fish. Flop it over. Oh, there's another side. Oh, they noticed a few other things. And they'd take it back. Oh, I got it all. And you go, oh, that's great. You missed some more. Go again. And this would go on for days until they would begin to write and write and realize they were barely observing it at all. And then, after they had caught it, he would then go get another fish, and then they would immediately dive in. And what he was showing them is if you want to be an expert in zoology, the study of animals, don't just see it, observe it. Uh, Then, once you know one, compare it to another. They were seeing, but they weren't observing. Dale Dale Davis writes, Since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder his works, both the majestic and the mundane. The task of wisdom is joyfully to describe and investigate all God's works. We may not be Solomon's in insight, 
but we can gratefully examine the same data. And so may we have the same curiosity that we turn off the distractions and we open our eyes to see all that God has given us. So here we're given this beautiful chapter exemplifying the wisdom of God through one man. And what does it show us? Well, that if we want the wisdom of God, if we want to honor God with our life, we need to create order. We need to take whatever sphere of life we have and make it in a way that leads to blessing, to prosperity to others as we bring it into rule. And not just in some things, but all of life, we should do this so that the wideness and variety in God's world is enjoyed through us and led to be a blessing to others. And yet Solomon shows us that though he could get many things in order, he couldn't get it all. There's that one dangling screw. There's one issue he couldn't get perfect. And none of us, by wisdom, is ever going to completely get in order. And that is our sin. Every single one of us inside of us has desires that are not ordered. And Solomon, no matter how perfect he could create a kingdom, it wouldn't last because he and other sinners were in it. And it's pointing forward that we need a greater person than Solomon. Scripture is going to refer back to Solomon and his wisdom and say that the one greater than he has come, Jesus of Nazareth. And he brings order, not just temporarily, but by him coming and conquering sin, he brings order. He killed sin so that we might eventually be restored to newness of life, so that one day there will be no disorder again, but all will be perfectly under his reign. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we long for that day when your kingdom will fully come. When the chaos and disorder in our relationships, in our lives, and often in our hearts is fully subdued by your Son. Lord, may we, though, even now be people of wisdom as we go out into this world. May we be a blessing as we live your character out in this world. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.